This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the Tom Hartman program, The Young Turks, The Progressive, The David Pakman Show, and The Majority Report. And a note for those who may feel the urge to scream about being unconstitutionally spied on by your government, just remember that everything you say, and I do mean everything, can and will be used against you, though not necessarily in a court of law. Are we the people the terrorists know? And in fact, I, you know, let me just dive right into that. Hebshi Shoshona is an American citizen and the mother of seven-year-old twins. She's also one of the latest casualties of the hysteria built into our national war on terror. On the 10th anniversary of 9-11, she flew on Frontier Airlines to Detroit. When the plane pulled up to the gate, all the passengers on board were ordered to stay in their seats put their heads down, and put their arms up in front of them. Federal agents carrying large military-style weapons then boarded the plane and marched down the aisles. And here's Shoshana talking about what happened to her next. I wondered if there was a fugitive on board. I had no idea they were coming for me. When they stopped in my row and ordered me to stand up, I was completely shocked and panicked. I was ordered off the flight at gunpoint, handcuffed, shuttled into the back of the police car, into a small cell where an officer strip-searched me. I was scared and alone in that dirty cell. I can't begin to describe the humiliation I felt. No one would tell me what was going on, despite my repeated requests for information. No one told me of my rights or when I would be able to call my family, who had no idea where I was. One time, Hebshi Shoshana was interrogated by an FBI agent, and she eventually learned that she had been removed from the plane because of her ethnic name, Hebshi, an Arabic name, and her seat assignment. She's half Jewish, half Arabic, by the way. She was seated between two men who were described by flight attendants as, quote, possibly of Arab descent. Oh, my God, three of them in a row. Those men had gone to the restroom a couple of times during the flight. <gasps> These two men, by the way, were also American citizens, just like Hebshi, only she being uh, Jewish and Middle Eastern, they were of Indian descent. But in our post-9-11 fear frenzy, whipped up by George W. Bush, the simple act of using the bathroom while being Arab-looking is enough to get you dragged off a plane at gunpoint. And under the Patriot Act, it's completely justifiable for federal agents armed to the teeth to spring into action and drag you because of whoever is sitting next to you off the plane, strip you naked, and put you in a jail cell indefinitely without a phone call, without the right to a lawyer, and without any information whatsoever about why you're being detained. And they can legally keep you there for the rest of your life. To repeat... All of this is now legal in post-George W. Bush America. All of this can happen to any of us, just as it happened to Hebshi Shoshana, the American citizen and middle-class, middle-aged mother of twin boys. She now lives in fear that this might happen to her again. In my wildest dreams, I would have never imagined being in this situation. And I often think about what would have happened if my twin boys had been there with me. Every time I fly, I wonder 
if today is the day it's going to happen again. I wonder if I will leave the flight on my own accord or be paraded through the aisle like a criminal. I know now that my only crime on that day was having an ethnic name and an arbitrary seat assignment. You know, it's kind of hard to imagine this happening to any of us, although I'm guessing that people who have grown up African-American in this country or Hispanic in this country probably can more easily imagine it than those of us who grew up white in this country. But increasingly, it's now all of us, as our national war on terror has been running on for more than a decade, and we've gone nationally crazy. I mean, with this war on terror, we've seen two full-fledged wars fought in Afghanistan and Iraq, killing hundreds of thousands of people, destroying the lives of millions at the cost of trillions of dollars. We've seen multiple covert drone wars launched in places like Pakistan, Yemen, and Somalia. We've seen an enormous security state apparatus constructed here at home that collects our personal emails, our text messages, our phone conversations, and God only knows what else. We have watched the legalization of indefinite detention of American citizens. And frankly, the Constitution, by the way, doesn't differentiate. It says persons. Anybody on American soil should should have access to the Bill of Rights. Well, not only have foreigners lost those rights, but you and I, assuming you're a citizen, have as well. Lost our rights as citizens, and now we can be held without charges, without trial, without the ability to even confront our accusers if an authority says that they suspect us of affiliating with terrorist organizations. And in the case of Hebshi Shoshana, we've seen the ruthless counterterror operations that we believed were only done in far-off places, like the Middle East or secret CIA detention facilities. We've seen all this stuff brought home and used against us against American citizens, on American airliners. Not that brand, obviously. On on airplanes in America, at American airports. And for the most part, we the people have let all this stuff happen. So now, as this war on terror turns inward and begins devouring us from within, We should be asking ourselves, what have we created? With the help of the ACLU, Hebshi Shoshana is filing suit against the FBI, Frontier Airlines, the TSA, ICE, and Customs and Border Protection. She hopes her lawsuit will bring, quote, accountability and changes so this type of thing doesn't happen again, end quote. We can only hope. But the fact is that we, the people, allowed this war on terror to begin and to grow. And if we, the people, don't put it to end, to, to rest fast, then it's going to be turning its guns on us, too. You know, all these all these uh, right-wing gun nuts are running around saying, we got to have our guns take on the government. All right. And the rationalization that they use is, Adolf Hitler took away the guns. Well, factually, it's inaccurate. But more important, it wasn't just Hitler 
who killed the gypsies and the Jews and the communists and the trade unionists and the gays and the Catholics and then ultimately pretty much anybody who stood up against them in Germany. It wasn't just Hitler. It was the German people. Hitler was one of the most popular leaders ever. The German people as a whole. It was German people on Kristallnacht who went out and smashed windows. It was the German people who participated in these things. Like this national hysteria. Oh, look at there are different people among us. Tell me that's not happening here now. I mean, obviously not on the scale, and I don't want to diminish the Holocaust in any way by by the comparison, and I suppose at some level any comparison does, but there are lessons to be learned from watching countries that have gone insane, where fear has been whipped up in the media for the purposes of political gain. When are we going to start standing up and saying, you know, we're not afraid anymore? Can we bring that to the back to our country? What drives a man to lock his doors and bar his windows tight? To leave his lights on time as so his house appears so bright. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. So Bradley Manning's in jail facing a possible life sentence because he leaked material to, the allegation is, to WikiLeaks. And it appears that our government is uh, trying to find Assange and prosecute him as well. There's been reports about that, right? Well, obviously, I mean, there are cyber terrorists, hackers, etc. Oh, my God. It's a- and look, if you release the information, they're saying Bradley Manning released it to the enemy. Wait a minute. Did he release it to Al-Qaeda or Taliban or something? No. In fact, he said... Before he had any idea that they were tracking him, he said, look, I want this information out there so people know what their government is doing, so that they're more educated and have more information so they can make better decisions. That's the definition of a whistleblower. That's exactly what a whistleblower does. That's someone who cares about our democracy, not trying to help our enemies. They're trying to help the United States of America to be a better democracy. Now you can say, hey, listen, he should be in jail anyway, because that's his opinion and elite classified information if you believe the government's case. But this idea that life sentence, oh my God, he communicated this information to the enemy. Now, why is it communicated to the enemy? Well, if it's in the public, they can read it. Hmm, that's interesting. But then, WikiLeaks published it, and then New York Times took it, and also published it from WikiLeaks. New York Times revealing it to the enemy. The public is the enemy. Think about that. That's the real trippy part, right? If you release any information from the government, about their, our representatives and what they're doing behind the scenes. Well, you've released it to the enemy. So, okay, New York Times, I assume that if Assange gets arrested, then, er, then everybody that worked on that story in the New York Times should be arrested under the same exact principle. Indisputable. Okay? And then you move to Bob Woodward. But Bob Woodward releases classified information that was literally called 
top secret. It's more classified than what Bradley Manning released. That's a fact. You, Michael Isikoff did a great piece about it on NBC News. You can look it up anywhere you like. It's in uh, Woodward's books. In fact, he released code names of previously unknown national security agency programs. Uh, the existence of a clandestine paramilitary army run by the CIA in Afghanistan. It's a secret paramilitary army run by the CIA. Bradley Manning never released information that classified. He released information about a secret Chinese cyber penetration of Obama and John McCain's campaign computers. Totally top secret. Woodward released it. Now, why is Woodward not in jail? Why didn't they strip him down naked at night? Why didn't they put him in isolation for nine months? Because that was information the government wanted leaked. It's more classified. It's under the same exact umbrella. But someone in government would gain politically from leaking that information. And that's what Bob Woodward is here to do. He's here to serve the government. Old Bob Woodward that did Bob Watergate was a fantastic journalist. New Bob Woodward is, George W. Bush, how can I help you? Obama administration, Democrats, Republicans, whoever is in power, how can I help you? Would you like me to leak your top secret information? Can do. Why isn't Bob Woodward in jail if Bradley Manning's? There is no logical explanation. There, you know what? If you ask the government, they don't answer you because they don't have an answer. If you ask the media, if you ask the Washington Post, New York Times, there is no answer. And okay, put Bob Woodward aside. How about the people who leaked to Bob Woodward? The people inside the government, the highest people in the Bush and Obama administrations. They're exactly what Bradley Manning did. Exactly. Why aren't they in jail? Why aren't they stripped down naked? Why aren't they in isolation for nine months? Because it isn't about what Bradley Manning released. It's that Bradley Manning released information that embarrassed the government, whereas Bob Woodward releases information that the government uses to pat themselves on the back. The hypocrisy and, honestly, the illegality of what's happening is outrageous. Then, the final defense of uh, the people prosecuting Bradley Manning is, well, look, look, you have to understand something. If Bradley Manning releases this information... Al-Qaeda and even Bin Laden could have read it. That's interesting, because as Glenn Greenwald points out, there is literally a tape of Osama Bin Laden, before he was killed, saying, I read Bob Woodward's book, you should all read it, it's got national secrets in it. <laughs> I'm waiting for the arrest of Bob Woodward, and more importantly, all of his sources. And I can't wait to see what kind of torture we're going to do to them. Oh, we're not going to do that, are we? But we're going to continue to keep Bradley Manning in jail. We're going to continue to hunt down Assange because the government doesn't like the information they're leaking. That might actually help you to make more informed decisions as the citizens of this democracy. And that's the last thing they want. I salute Private First Class Bradley Manning. I salute him for withstanding the hideous mistreatment he faced in the thousand days he's been confined, often in solitary, sometimes naked, 
enduring sleep deprivation and sensory deprivation. I salute him for being a soldier of conscience who was outraged by what he saw in Iraq, especially by that Apache helicopter attack on two Reuters journalists and on the van that came to assist them. I salute him for recognizing and agonizing over the seemingly delightful bloodlust of the helicopter crew, as he put it, who seemed, he said, similar to a child torturing ants with a magnifying glass. I salute him for trying to get the word out, first by contacting the Washington Post and the New York Times, but when they turned a deaf ear, then going to WikiLeaks. I salute him for exonerating WikiLeaks by testifying that they didn't pressure him to divulge the documents. I salute him for trying, in his words, to spark a debate about U.S. policy in Iraq and Afghanistan. I salute him for taking responsibility for his actions and for pleading guilty to ten charges that could put him in prison for 20 years without plea bargaining at all. I salute him for standing up for what's right, no matter the consequences. In short, I salute Private First Class Bradley Manning for being one brave soldier, one brave citizen. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. One dies, and I die too. So do you. The PC dies. And I believe in that what I said. Oh, I believe in them. And we were 15,000 lost in Grant's cavalry. And we crowned him with the thorns in Calgary. And we trapped trapmen on the beach in Normandy. And we have died a billion times, you and me. Two out of three Americans have essentially lost their Fourth Amendment protection to the Department of Homeland Security. What do I mean by this? Well, the Department of Homeland Security has decided that search and seizures happening in certain places, which we'll talk about, do not violate Fourth Amendment protections against unreasonable search and seizure. This specifically refers to border agents who don't need probable cause nor warrants since they don't need to prove reasonable suspicion because they are operating within that 100-mile uh, range from a border. And this also includes the coasts as well. So this is interesting because the ACLU has been talking about this as the constitution-free zone for a while. And we basically now have the numbers which about 200 million Americans who live within 100 miles of the U.S. border have no Fourth Amendment protection when it comes to coming in and out of the country, but more broadly, because they are within 100 miles, really any time. And we know we have a, f a friend who's in Border Patrol, and he tells us about this. Basically, he's free to ask anybody for anything. He doesn't need a search warrant nor probable cause as long as within, he's within 100 miles of the border. That's it. That's just it. Right. And the ACLU, of course, says that this violates the, the Fourth Amendment and that in some ways it could violate the First Amendment when it comes to reviewing electronic devices and making assessments about what you are likely to do, crimes you may, may be going to commit based on text or files, things you have written on that computer. It's incredible stuff, Lewis. Uh, yeah, I'll say. Also, Godfather Politics noted, if you live anywhere in Connecticut, Delaware, Florida, Hawaii, Maine, Massachusetts, Michigan, New Hampshire, New Jersey, or, or Rhode Island, the search zones from Department of Homeland Security encompass the entire 
state. So there are um, there's a number of uh, 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 there. Well, let's see. Number one, the ACLU is going to continue fighting this. They've requested a number of documents to explore further. What is the text of, of a lot of the the justification being used here? But there's other groups like EFF which uh, this is the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which provide tips about how to protect your devices from search, etc. They actually have a border search quiz, which I'm going to take right now. Let's see if you can pick this up off of my screen, Natan. It's like a five-question quiz. Let's see if I can uh, answer correctly. Question one, I'm a U.S. citizen and just arrived back to the U.S. from a business trip. I worked on some business documents that are confidential to my employer. Can border agents search my computer? I mean, I guess yes. I would say... Yes, a border agent can search my laptop at the border without reasonable suspicion. Next question. Typically, which entity would be in charge of searching me or my possessions when I enter the U.S.? That's Customs and Border Protection. I know that. I hope, anyway. If I've protected my computer with an account password, will the data stored on my computer be adequately protected when I cross the border? I would say no. Uh, and there's only one of those. No, an account password is easily bypassed by accessing the same disk using a different operating system. That sounds right to me. Question four. If I decide to use a full disk encryption tool to protect my data, which of the following passphrases is more secure? I would say the longest one. The sleeps mighty tonight exclamation, jungle jungle, the in lion, the exclamation. I think that's probably the most secure. And number five, which of the following is the most secure way to protect your data when crossing the border? There's a few options. Well, the last one's all of the above. I would assume it's just doing all that stuff. Let's see. Grade me. Five out of five. There you go. So I think it's worth looking at this website, EFF.org, just to see some of the things that they say. I, I actually, for backup purposes, I try to keep a lot of stuff on the cloud, using cloud-type services so that I can access them from anywhere, regardless of whether I have my device or not. But that doesn't really provide any protections when it comes to this type of thing. Right. Yeah. Of course, I mean, that just means you're not carrying anything on you, presumably, right? Yeah. So, but if someone turns on my laptop, for example, I have all those synced folders that, right. while all the data is in the cloud, they can still access it. And presumably it could be accessed by anyone even without your laptop given the proper tools. Absolutely. Yeah. Here at Best of the Left, supporting the good works of others is our entire reason for existence. Since the beginning of 2006, I've been making this show to highlight what I consider to be some of the best of the truly liberal media. Now I'm working on several ways to promote the best progressive activism around. Ruminate for a moment on whether you enjoy this show or consider its goals to be worthwhile, and if you do, please consider supporting this work by becoming a member for as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year at the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. It's the donations of members that allow the show to continue and continue to improve. Thanks so much for your support. How does a nation become a terrorist state to its own citizens? How does, it, how does a country begin frightening its own people? It always begins with fear. It always begins with fear. And usually it's a, it's a fear of other. It's a fear, a fear of different lifestyles, fear of different appearances, 
fear of different ethnicities, fear, you know, it's a fear of the other. There's this foundational thing. I'm convinced that there's actually a, a biological reason for this, that, that we are wired to be basically tribal uh, or, or familial at the very least that we are wired as as primates and and you and frankly I think you see this probably in all mammals to protect kith and kin right to you know to watch out for those well if actually we know some of the neurochemistry of this oxytocin not the drug that Rush Limbaugh got addicted to that was oxycontin but oxytocin is a hormone that the body produces In response to uh, a, a variety of things, it's it's associated with it's massively spikes during childbirth, and it also seems to be associated with uh, sexual arousal and with quote love, falling in love. And what it does is it actually binds people to each other. When people are in each other's presence, and they're both they both have high levels of oxytocin, there's a there's a, a binding that goes on. You've probably seen or heard stories of or even seen video of, you know, the baby duck that got hatched with the geese. And the first goose that the, the first bird that the duck saw was a, was a mother goose. And so, you know, thought, Oh, mom, and follows them around. Or the, the, you know, the, the, the dog that was raised by the cat or the cat that was raised by the dog. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's all these examples of. And most of that tracks back to oxytocin, to, to this, you know, there's actually a chemical thing about binding, about us bonding to each other. So family is the tightest bond, bond, binding, the, the tightest bond. And there's an actual chemical, neurological, hormonal, oxytocin is a hormone, um, associated with that, measurable, definable. And, in fact, I would suggest it goes beyond immediate family. So then beyond family, of course, is extended family, which historically, I mean, you know, cousins and nephews and nieces and second cousins and third cousins and fourth cousins, and historically that's been called tribe, people who are uh, relatively closely related. And Malcolm Gladwell, in his first book, Blink was his second and uh, the title of his first book had something to do with things going viral, as it were. But in, in any case, he, he quoted some really, really good research in there that showed that uh, humans are wired to be able to, bo to bond with about 150 people and that there's a difference between brain size and the ability to bond. And our brains, and the, the, you, you could track this on a, on a scale, that, that you know a mouse can bond with a certain number of other mice a dog can bond with a certain number of dogs. You know, a chimpanzee can bond with a certain number of chimps. And all the way up to humans, you can just draw a line, and you can see that brain size is correlated with social group size. And our social group size is 150. That's how many we can feel bonded to at any one given moment in our lives. Now, some people have the ability to be to massively expand that number. I would say that's... That's somebody like Bill Clinton, somebody who's just incredibly socially competent. And some people have, you know, probably a much smaller number than that 150. 
you know, people who are very uh, more introverted and more you know, keep to themselves. But this is biological stuff. And so when you combine that, you know, that fundamental biology with somebody saying, oh, look at them, they're different than you, they're different than us, it triggers something that's primal in us. And then when they add to that, oh, look at them, they're different than us, and they represent a threat to us, that triggers something that's even more deeply primal. Fight and flight, fight or flight, that fight or flight response that comes out of the limbic brain is something we don't just share with mammals. We share with lizards. Right? You frighten a snake, and it will rear up, and it will either fight or it will or it will flee. It will, and it will. You can you can see it make, making its calculations. We're talking about really fundamental stuff here, stuff that's way beyond the ability of our conscious mind to control because it's wired into us. It's wired into us at a level that's below words, below logic. And then, so then you say, oh, look at they're different than us. Now they're outside our, our group, our tribe, our family. They're different than us, and they represent a threat to us. And then you kick a third one in there. Oh, and not only that, they're inferior to us. And now, oh, well, they're not even fully human. And now you've set the stage for everything from 6,000 years of slavery in modern civilization to genocide, the destruction of the Native Americans, the Holocaust. So what's the message that's being conveyed by all this hysteria? All this, be afraid, be very afraid. I mean, this is powerful stuff. This is dynamite. Whether it was the Hutus and the Tutsis, or whether it was, you know, what happened in Europe before World War II, or whether it's what we've seen throughout civilization over and over and over again. The Native American, the genocide against the Native Americans here. The executive branch just got more freedom to spy on us after the Supreme Court threw out a challenge Tuesday on the FISA amendments. Under those amendments to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, the government can spy on our phone calls, spy on our emails, spy on our messages, and spy on our Skyping whenever we're overseas or even talking to someone overseas. The government doesn't even need a warrant to do this, and it doesn't ever need to tell us that it's been targeting us. This is a blatant affront to the Fourth Amendment, but not according to Samuel Alito and the four other conservative justices on the court. They ruled in a classic Catch-22 that since the lawyers and journalists who were suing the government couldn't prove that they were being spied on, they didn't have standing to bring their case. Of course, they couldn't prove it because the government, by law now, doesn't have to reveal it. As a result, it's going to be all but impossible to ever challenge this law in court. 
So now the CIA and the NSA and the president can merrily spy on us without fear that a court is going to tell them to stop. And since Congress has refused to tell them to stop, we as so-called American citizens have seen our rights shredded before our very eyes. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. Secret heart, what are you made of? Ryan from New Jersey, welcome to the program, Ryan. I just wanted to uh, bring up another topic. I know how you were talking about the absurdity of the Supreme Court um, with the Civil Rights Act uh, section before with your first interview. Yeah. Um, the, if you read the New York Times uh, last morning, um, they also had a rejection of the legal challenge to surveillance of the uh, 2008 law that was put in place. Yes, actually, um, um, I, I have that right here. Go ahead. Oh, I didn't, I didn't realize you were going to get into it. Well, I have it. I was going to actually save it for tomorrow, probably. Clapper versus Amnesty International, I believe. Um, it was a 5-4 yeah. holding, and it essentially, it essentially said uh, that you cannot challenge secret wiretapping because of its nature of being secret. And uh, therefore, yeah. you, yes, um, I mean, that we, we've heard that on um, on. On lower level courts, uh, I'll get into it over the coming days. Uh, uh, but yes, it's just another example of how effed up uh, this stuff is. Yeah, I mean, going forward, they, uh, the paper says that this, the decision, you know, the 5 4 decision where all the conservatives came together and, uh, you know, rejected the challenge, um, that basically this means that going forward, the Supreme Court will never rule on the constitutionality. Of that law itself. How can it? It's um, secret. Yeah. I'm, well, yeah. I mean, the the argument by the majority is that uh, basically you can't bring forward a case where you're you want you're saying that your civil liberties are at risk, right. but you can't prove it because the government doesn't give out the information to you. Right. You so don't have standing give it out. to to go to bring a case to any court. You need to show the court that you have somehow been harmed by this. And uh, we saw this yeah. actually with the N uh, NDAA uh, case as well that Hedges and um, uh, others were involved in. Um, and essentially you need to prove that you as an individual or you as a class of people have been harmed by this case, by, by this law. This is also analogous to what yeah. happened to uh, Anwar al-Awlaki's um, uh, father. The father could not bring the case to say, hey, uh, I want to enjoin the U.S. government from killing my son. They said, well, you're not the one who's going to be killed, so you can't bring it on his behalf. And so if you, you have to prove yeah. that you are somehow being harmed by this law. But if it's secret, you can't prove that. Now, there was one case in the NSA on the West Coast on this wiretapping uh, where the government accidentally forwarded <laughs> records to the defendant that they had been spied upon mm -hmm. and therefore they had record that they had been spied upon and could bring that up uh, and provide them standing um, and so uh, the issue is is how do you prove that you are being subject to illegal spy spying or wiretapping in this case 
Um, if it is secret and you can't get the government to show whether or not that you've been spied upon, you only suspect it. Th this is the catch-22. And it essentially says that we can never, if you're the subject of a secret warrantless wi wiretapping program, uh, you need to prove first that you're allowed to complain about it, that you're being wiretapped. And so that means that you somehow need proof of the existence of this program, which is, uh, which is secret. So it's a, it's a classic uh, Catch-22, yeah. but I I'll go into it more in depth over the uh, coming days. Yeah, I just wanted to say, though, I'm not surprised that, in particular, that uh, Antoine Scalia, and course, you know, no. it's obvious that he would be a part of the majority. Of course not. But also you had the, uh, I like to call the uh, silent assassin, Clarence Thomas also, you know, the, the pinnacle of uh, Supreme Court justice himself, also a part of this majority ruling, so... I mean, look, I think to see him along for the ride. I hope I hope rulings like this and other rulings speak to and I appreciate the phone call. I'm going to let you go. Um, uh, Ryan, thanks. Uh, speak to the importance of the Supreme Court. You know, all those people who are poo pooing uh, a vote for Obama for the sake of the Supreme Court. This is another example of it. And as much as uh, people like Kagan have been criticized for deferring to um to the uh, state's power. You know, this is an example of it coming down to 5-4 again. And I don't know if President Obama will have an opportunity to replace one of those uh, people in the five. I don't know that he'll have an opportunity to replace one of the people in the four. It's likely he will. And he will with a justice who will be there for 30 years. Whereas... You've got uh, a couple of justices in that uh, five uh, voting block who won't be there for 30 years, who will be there for another five or ten or three. And there will be an opportunity to replace them and perhaps, if not reverse some of these rulings, mitigate the, uh, the trend in some fashion. Uh, the, the left simply has to, to pay more attention to this. And, and, and then it would also create more pressure on who the president will pick. I mean, that's just the that's just the reality of it. And uh, it's, I mean, if the supreme if the if the the election of two thousand wasn't enough, I mean, give, give me a break. No justice, no peace. You rig the system. You make it blind. With slide of hand, you cheat. Hi, I'm Sam Cedar. You may know me from my shows on Air America Radio, from filling in for Keith Olbermann on Countdown, or even, God forbid, my directing shows like Comedy Central's I'm With Busey. If not, you should really get to know me. Not personally, of course. I think we'd both find that uncomfortable. But if you're a fan of the best of the left like me, I think you'll enjoy my daily live show and podcast, The Majority Report, at Majority.fm. It's a daily dose of political news, analysis, and guests like Chris Hayes, Robert Reich, Digby, comedians like Mark Marin, Janine Garofalo, filmmakers like Morgan Spurlock and Lucy Walker, and on occasion, between my rants on raising taxes, ending wars, and decorporatizing our democracy, I can be mildly amusing. I'm unbought and unbossed daily on the Majority Report at Majority.fm. You're swimming in green and not... It's a great organization called uh, Reporters Without Borders. 
uh, and they are trying to protect journalists throughout the country and throughout the world, obviously. Uh, and least recently, they came up with a list of the five corporate enemies of the Internet. Interesting. And here's who's on the list. Gamma, Trovacor, Hacking Team, Amasis, and Bluecoat. Now, these are organizations that uh, oftentimes get private information online, and then they help the governments get that information and exploit it from time to time. And at least Hacking Team and Gamma have already uh, been accused of capturing the passwords of journalists. So obviously this is a huge issue for Reporters Without Borders. But it turns out there's an even bigger issue. There's a new report out by Citizen Lab of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. And they looked into specifically one of the organizations we just talked about, Gamma. Well, they have a program called FinSpy. Well, what does FinSpy do? Here's what it does. It is a surveillance tool that infects computers to capture screenshots, log keystrokes, record Skype conversations, and activate cameras and microphones. Now, if that doesn't scare the bejesus out of you, you're not paying attention. You got a camera on your computer, and you all have mics on your computer. I don't know if you know that, okay? They can record you, what you're doing in your living room, what you're doing in your office, if this gets onto your computer. And now Gamma is giving it to foreign governments, and what are they doing? Of course, they're using it to suppress dissidents. Now, Gamma says, I love this, uh, that it's used mostly, quote, against pedophiles, terrorists, organized crime, kidnapping, and human trafficking. Well, that sounds so good, right? No. The new report says, in reality, it is regularly sold to countries where dissenting political activity and speech is criminalized. So they have sold it to places like Ethiopia, Vietnam, where, by the way, they use it against 14 bloggers, writers, and activists who are now in jail for opposing the government, and Bahrain, who also used it to crack down on activists in that country. In Ethiopia, they did this cute little trick where they had an opposing political figure's picture, and people would say, oh, yes, I'm in favor of that. They downloaded, and all of a sudden, Finn spies on your computer. Even if you didn't send an email, if you wrote something out, because it records the keystrokes, it still has it. You're having a Skype conversation with your family, it has it. You're not doing anything on your computer, it doesn't matter, the camera and the mic are on, it has it. One more uh, quote from the study. Our findings highlight the increasing dissonance between Gamma's public claims that FinSpy is used exclusively to track bad guys, and a growing body of evidence suggesting that the tool has and continues to be used against opposition groups and human rights activists. And you think the U.S. government isn't interested in this? You think the Chinese government isn't interested in this? You think the Russian government isn't interested in this? You think they're not using it for their own purposes instead of tracking pedophiles and terrorists? That's the excuse they always give you. This is about as dangerous as, it's, as it gets. We're fully in 1984. They know all of your accounts. We, in this previous story, we told you they can access all of your bank accounts. Now they can access all of your email, all of your internet searches, all of your conversations, not only online, but even in your own home and office. George Orwell was a genius, but we didn't listen to his warning, and we're smack dab right in the middle of 1984.
and we're letting them do do this to us day in and day out. We should be in full out political rebellion over this. This should be the most illegal thing there is in the country. And yet governments all across the world are already using it. When I heard that Rand Paul was holding a filibuster against John Brennan, I ran to my computer and watched part of it on C-SPAN 2. And you know what? I agreed wholeheartedly with just about every single thing he was saying. Senator Paul, whom I disagree with on so many issues, was absolutely right about the extreme dangers of President Obama's assassination doctrine and John Brennan's drone policy. The young Paul was pointing out how unconstitutional the president's power grab is and how dangerous. He properly called gobbledygook the Obama administration's rationale for the drones. He called out the Justice Department, whose lawyers said that using drones are appropriate when the threat is imminent, and then they defined imminent as not immediate, which is classic Orwellian doublespeak. Paul also raised the concern that Obama or some future president could drop a drone bomb on a U.S. citizen right here in the U.S. He acknowledged that Obama said he wouldn't do that, but Paul said that's not an adequate response, and it isn't. He said he needed an assurance from the president that non-combatants cannot be killed in the U.S. If they can, he said, we're living in a far different country than we thought. Paul said there's some contagion in the Oval Office that makes presidents want to grab more and more power. And he's right about that one, too. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. Back in July of 2009, this is four years ago, six months into the first term of Obama's presidency, Louise and I were back in Michigan for our family reunion kind of annual hoop-de-doop picnic thing. And one of my brothers is a sport and target shooter, and uh, we were visiting, and so, you know, hey, let's let's go down and and do some target practice, some target shooting. So we went to one of Central Michigan's biggest gun stores to buy some ammunition. Steve had guns. Actually, I, I rented a gun when I was there as well. And, in fact, as I, as I recall, I, I rented a forty caliber uh, Ruger. But in any case, uh, this was, you know, this giant gun store. This is a gun store that was like the size of a, of a mini Walmart. It was huge. It was big, right? They had hundreds, thousands of guns, and a wall full of ammunition. Or a wall full of half-empty shelves that usually were overfilling with ammunition. 
And when we got to that store, the owner said he couldn't sell me more than 50 rounds. 50 rounds a person, maybe it was 100 rounds. It was some limit like that, basically a box. Maybe it was two. Uh, because the store was running low on ammo. So I asked why the store was running low on ammo, and his response was along the lines of, Because I, I don't know how to say this. Here, here, this is a pretty, you know, verbatim recollection. Because that N word in the White House has taken all our guns away, and people are stocking up. Now, this was four years ago. I was astounded, and I said, you know, how do you know that he wants to take all your guns away? I didn't even deal with the, the obscenity. And he says, I got the emails to prove it. But the federal government is not only planning to take away everyone's guns, but that Obama is even planning on taking out people he doesn't like. This all took place four years ago. At that time, the government-hating gun store owner represented a fringe group in America. and or Maybe he wasn't the owner, it was an employee. And at that time, information about how the government was running out of control, way beyond the constraints the founders put into the Constitution, that kind of thing. That was pretty much the kind of talk that you heard on far-right extremist shortwave radio, you know, on emails and websites, right-wing web websites. And that was pretty much it. Well, times have changed. Now the gun nuts who are stocking up on ammo and forming right-wing extremist hate groups have the Attorney General of the United States telling them that he and the President reserve the right to kill them if he thinks they're a threat. Yes, you heard that right. Attorney General Eric Holder is not ruling out a scenario in which the President could order a drone strike against American citizens on U.S. soil. Now, his comments released Tuesday were prompted by questions raised over the nomination of John Brennan to head the CIA. Specifically, Rand Paul, Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky, had asked whether the Obama administration had considered using its drone policy domestically. In a letter to Senator Paul dated Monday, Holder said it was conceivable, quote, I suppose, he said, to foresee a, quote, extraordinary circumstance in which it would be necessary and appropriate, end quote, under U.S. law for the President of the United States to authorize the military to use lethal force, his phrase, within the United States. Responding to Holder, Holder's comments, now, actually, let me, let me just go on a little farther. The example that Eric Holder gave was essentially if, you know, we knew that the 9-11 planes were going to hit the trade towers and we could shoot them down over, he didn't say it in this kind of language, I'll, I'll read you the actual letter, but, you know, we could shoot them down like, you know, with that flight in Pennsylvania went down in Shanksville. Um, that's something that we should have the power to do. In fact, here's how Holder phrased it. He said, the question you have posed is entirely hypothetical, unlikely to occur, and one we hope the president will never have to confront. It is possible, I suppose, to imagine an extraordinary circumstance in which it would be necessary and appropriate under the Constitution and applicable laws for the president to authorize the military to use lethal force within the United States. For example, the president could conceivably have no choice but to authorize the military to use such force if necessary to protect the homeland in the circumstances of a catastrophic attack like the one suffered on December 7, 1941. In other words, shoot down the 
the Japanese fleet as they're about to drop bombs on, her, on Pearl Harbor. And September 11th, 2001. In other words, shoot down a plane, shoot down those planes before they, before they were able to strike the Pentagon or the White House or the, and there's still a debate actually about whether that plane in Pennsylvania was shot down. Not, a, not so much a debate. There's still some, some discussion around the edges. But in any case, Senator Paul's response was that, okay, well, that's the, you know, that's the obvious and easy stuff, but what about all the stuff in the middle? Responding to Holder's comments, Senator Paul issued a statement in part that said, the U.S. Attorney General's refusal to rule out the possibility of drone strikes on American citizens and on American soil is more than frightening. It is an affront on the constitutional due process right of all Americans. And I got to say, as much as I think Rand Paul is a crackpot, particularly his economic, you know, on economics, Rand Paul is, you know, crackpot off the scale. He's a libertarian. But on this issue, Senator Paul is right. Way back in June of 1878, following the Reconstruction Era, or during the Reconstruction Era, following the Civil War, Congress passed the Posse Comitatus Act. The intent of that act, which was a distant grandson of the Insurrection Act of 1807, was to limit the powers of the federal government when it came to using federal military personnel to enforce state laws against Americans on American soil. Basically, the Army can't turn its guns on citizens. The law was modified in 1981 to make it explicit that it was referring to the powers of the armed forces. The law was modified in 1981 to refer to the powers of the armed forces. In 2006, the Bush administration urged Congress to revoke Posse Comitatus so that U.S. armed forces could restore public order and enforce laws in the aftermath of natural disasters, terrorist attacks, or other, quote, conditions. Congress went along with Bush's request. They passed as part of the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, in 2007. So Obama comes in. And in 2012, they're putting together, I mean, every, every year they've got to reauthorize the military. This is in the Constitution. You can't let the military run more than two years without reauthorizing it. So in 2012, Obama said, put Posse Comitatus back in there. And they did in the NDAA of 2012. It was one of the actually good things that was done. But it had a loophole that military personnel could still be used to detain, quote, a person who was a part of or substantially supported al-Qaeda, the Taliban, or associated forces that are engaged in hostilities against the United States or its coalition partners, including any person who has committed a belligerent act or who has directly supported such hostilities in aid of such enemy forces. That's one pretty damn large loophole.
Now, you remember the guys who started doing warrantless wiretapping, of course, was the Bush administration. The liberals were very mad about that, including President Obama. In fact, uh, my favorite quote comes from Eric Holder. Now, this is not when he was attorney general. He's, of course, currently the attorney general. This is back when Bush started doing warrantless wiretapping. He said, quote, I never thought I would see a president act in direct defiance of federal law. Now, of course, he is supposed to be the main upholder of that law as attorney general now, where he completely agrees with what Bush did under warrantless wiretapping. In fact, the warrantless wiretapping was just extended, and the person responsible for making sure that they continue to be in direct defiance of federal law is Eric Holder. Now, Eric Holder will say, no, 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 it's okay, we changed the law so that what was previously illegal is now legal, so I feel better. Really? But you're doing the same exact thing that you thought was so outrageous before. What a bunch of unbelievable hypocrites. So the Wall Street Journal gets to brag about it. So they wrote an editorial. Of course, this is now owned by uh, Murdoch's News Corp. They say, wiretapping, which you may recall liberals portrayed during the George W. Bush era as an illegal and unconstitutional license for co-president Dick Cheney and his spy masters to bug the bedrooms of all U.S. citizens. But now, Washington has renewed the 2008 amendments to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act that were due to expire at the end of 2012 with no substantive changes and none of the pseudo-epiplexy that prevailed during the Bush presidency. Score one for the Wall Street Journal. Unfortunately, they're only 100% right about that. So all those liberals, where are you? I know some of you are out there, and a lot of you watch this show, right? But all those pseudo-liberals and pseudo-progressives think, that's our guy, let him do be brazen and do warrantless wiretapping and rip up the Fourth Amendment, who cares? In fact, it's not just his supporters, it's Congress. Look at House, 301 to 118. FISA upheld again. The changes to the FISA rules. Senate whistled through, as the Wall Street Journal explains, 73 to 23 in the Senate. Now, finally, the Wall Street uh, Journal rubs it in your face just a little bit more. They say, if the imperial presidency is only imperial when the president is a Republican, at least that doesn't represent a real political conviction, merely naked partisanship. Unfortunately, also true. Warrantless wiretapping was illegal, unconstitutional, and a terrible idea under Bush. It remains completely unconstitutional and a horrible idea under President Obama. If you think you're being progressive by just cheerleading a totally non-progressive president who happens to call himself a Democrat, you don't understand policy, you don't understand ideology, you don't understand principle, you don't understand the Constitution. All you understand is, who's on my team? Oh, my team is doing it, then it's just swell. It isn't. It's taken away our rights. It was unacceptable under Bush. It's unacceptable under Obama. Hey, this is Colby from Oregon. 
This is probably a little bit off topic for whatever show you're making now, but I just wanted to expand a little bit on a point you brought up um, in one of your summaries at the end of an episode, two episodes back. One of the reasons that I'm really proud of to be a progressive is I think it just fundamentally always ends up being the champion of what's right on the right side of history, as is often said. And one of the reasons for that is just because we aren't afraid to be wrong and try new things. You mentioned that progressives are always the ones that say, we'll take this problem that we don't necessarily think anything can be done, and we'll figure out a way to do something about it. We'll try things, and we're not afraid of getting it wrong and then learning from that. And one of the most glaring examples of that is prohibition. If you look back in history of the U.S., Specifically, we don't even have to go to the rest of the world. We can just look at us. Progressives were the ones who fought for prohibition of alcohol, and they won. And then they were the people who fought against it because they realized, oh, this actually doesn't work. We thought it would. It made sense in our heads. But now that we see the real-world application of it, we realize we were kind of wrong. So then they fought to repeal it, and then they went in other directions. Those other directions have been more effective. So instead of throwing our hands up in the air and just saying, well, we can't do anything, we initiated some laws to control and try and keep it out of the hands of minors so people who are 13 don't necessarily go on huge binges. And we didn't stay in the wrong direction and just say, oh, we believe that just no one should drink it because it's a vice. And we weren't afraid to take that back. And that's one of the fundamental things I think progressives have. They're not afraid to be wrong. It's a very scientific, if you will, scientific method of try it. If there's experimental data that refutes it after we implemented it, then it's now wrong. The theory is disproven. So I just wanted to make a note of that. Proud to be a progressive because progressivism makes sense. Keep up the good work, Jay. Bye. Hi, Jay. This is Drea from Pennsylvania calling, and I just listened to Mara's response to Scott. Give the woman a job. What a great response. She knew what she was talking about. She put it beautifully. I could listen to her on her own show. What a great response. Thanks, Mara. Hi, Jay. This is Andy in St. Louis, and I'm calling in response to some of the drone comments uh, that I heard on the last episode, the second part of the economics uh, episode. And the thing that I've been hearing, and, and I don't think I heard it either in the clips or, or from the people who are responding, is the concern against drones doesn't come from, you know, that, that Obama's going to blow us out of the sky or, or whatever that might be. You know, I, I don't believe that for a second that, you know, Obama would start firing on Americans on American soil, just as I wouldn't believe that, you know, if Mitt Romney had won or, or whoever's going to end up winning in 2016. You know, that's, those aren't the people who are going to be carrying out these kinds of policies that right now most progressives are freaking out about and, and, and uh, trying to explain and, and get people on board with. The issue comes really more in 20 or 30 years, and where this where where this might take us. You know, right now most politicians, yeah, they do bad, good and bad things and, and whatever. But 
by and large, they fall on, on a spectrum of, okay, but they're not going to start, you know, killing people and civilians and Americans randomly. The issue is, you know, in 30 years, who knows what America is going to look like at that point. You know, maybe, maybe it's fine, maybe there's no issues, maybe there are problems, and there are situations where killing Americans without judicial oversight seems like a feasible thing, and, and everybody just kind of, you know, throws up their hands, and, and there's going to be the people who are protesting against it at those times, but by and large, it's something, it's a policy that's been set in place now that lays the groundwork for somebody further down the line who may take abuse of that power. And I think one of the better examples of it, and I believe I heard it on your show once before, was the idea of Obama using the Espionage Act, which was originally designed for spies protecting us and whatnot 20, 30 years ago. Now we're using it to silence whistleblowers and people who are exposing what our government is doing now. So just something to think about. Wanted to chime in. Thanks. Hey, Jay, it's Colin from Cleveland. Just listened to the last episode. And your final comments are responding to Wade's statement about American lives meaning more than other lives. You made an excellent point, but I, I don't know if you realize that the point you made could even go deeper. And people like Wade have to realize that putting that kind of pride in your nationality actually just continuates the problem. By saying that an American life means more to me, you're justifying every other country that doesn't like us to put their rights and their lives above ours. And the problem there is that there will never be peace as long as each nationality, each country, is just more concerned about themselves than the others. Wade is right. A lot of people do think like that. A lot of people are not evolved, like you said. A prime example of this years ago, I was at a holiday with my in-laws, and my wife's uncle was talking about us going into Iran at the time during the Iraq war because Iran was funding the insurgency, supposedly. And I told him, I don't feel we have any business there, and he told me to be an American, for Christ's sake. So I asked him to explain what he meant. And he said, he's like, they're funding terrorists to kill our troops. He's like, how can you not support us, you know, taking care of that? So pretty quickly on my feet, I turned to him and said, well, that's like saying that if we have the right to invade Iran right now because of this, then you're saying the Soviet Union had every right to attack us, you know, during uh, during the 80s. Because it, it is literally the same thing. The Soviet Union was a foreign occupying army to Afghanistan, and we were funding the Mujahideen. And when I said this to him, it was like I had sunker punched him. He, I mean, he was like a deer in headlights. He didn't know what to say. And this is the problem. People don't really step outside themselves and look at themselves as a global citizen. They just think about their country. And don't get me wrong, Jay, I'm a proud American. But it can't be blind, ignorant pride. You have to think of us as a global population if we want this world to continue. Love the show. 
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So I want to tell you today about an excellent comment I got critical of me, but that I really enjoyed. So I want to tell you about it, but first I'll tell you what it's about. So a few episodes back, I was having sort of a point-counterpoint back and forth with a conservative caller, Wade, on the issue of drones. And so I was basically making the point that drones in and of themselves are not evil. That's not really the the progressive argument is that drones are the problem because if we kill people with drones overseas uh, without any judicial overview, then we'll kill people in America with drones without judicial overview. I said that's not really the point. It's just the precedent it sets. It's not necessarily the method by which we you know, conduct these extrajudicial killings. So a few episodes back, this is what I had to say on the subject. And that's why the episode I'd made on the subject was titled, Drones Are Not the Problem, They Just Highlight the Problem. Assassinations obviously don't have to happen with drone strikes. That's not the point. The entirety of the argument of the episode was the one that Wade didn't even try to rebut, the lack of judicial oversight for an assassination program. So that basically explains my point of why killing anyone using any method without judicial oversight is going to be a problem, not just with drones. But then Janine Murdoch commented on Facebook in response uh, to my comments on drones, but took it from a different angle that I really liked. So uh, Janine says, I don't often disagree with Jay, but one thing he said here kind of bugged me. Drones themselves are a problem. In short, when you start removing the human cost of war, you start losing one of the biggest, most socially obvious and communicable reasons for ending a war or not getting in one in the first place. So I like that a lot, and it's absolutely true. It's very similar, sort of along the same lines of why, you know, maybe very anti-war, very progressive people might be in favor of reinstating the draft. Because if we had a draft where everyone's kids had to go to war, then we would end up going to fewer wars. At least that would be the hope. There would be a a bigger anti-war push in the country when there are more people having to go, the, the human cost is higher, whether or not people are actually dying, they are being sent and actually seeing the war firsthand. So drones is just one more step removing us from wars in the same way that removing the draft made it so that only 1% of the country actually goes and fights our wars. Now, if we could fight wars using just drones, then it's far less than 1%, and the, the people who are fighting don't even have to be there to be in danger in the first place. So I like that. It's just another angle to look at the drone issue from. And, you know, again, drones themselves are not exactly the problem, but they are indicative of the problem in yet another way. Uh, Drones are a way to remove us from the war even further if we invent something else besides drones that continue to remove the human cost from war. We will inevitably go in the direction of having more wars because there's no real cost to doing it. So we might as well. Again, give us your thoughts on this subject or any other, that number 202-999-3991. That is going to do it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to all those who support the show, either by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, DC. My name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bye, bye, now, 
black and white. You took a part of picture that wasn't right. 